These are the words of our Lord Jesus Christ to us. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the same way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye and look, the log is in your own eye. You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Lord, you're a faithful husband to your bride. I need you so much this morning. Help me to speak in ways that honor your word. In ways that are honest and helpful and not self-indulgent, but not hypocritical. And would you please open the hearts of all those hearing me to, Lord, hear you. And to, Lord, listen to what you're saying this morning through the preaching of your word. Help them to eat the meat and throw out the bones of my words so that your words land and stick. Do this through the power of the Holy Spirit that lives inside us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. We have a good Savior, a good husband, Redeemer, and he is going to help us this morning. So Jesus starts with these words, do not judge so that you will not be judged. You know, this might be one of the most famous verses in Scripture. You know, it might not be John 3.16 level, but it's close. Uh, Pope Francis was asked several years ago, close to the start of his papacy, about homosexuality. And his response was, who am I to judge? And that really resonated with uh, a lot of people. I, I think that Pope Francis, as a man who says he represents Christ, does have a duty to judge in one sense. That is, he has a duty to discern and state the truth about the sinfulness of homosexuality. But what was very attractive to so many people when they heard that was his willingness to stop and say, well, who am I to judge? Well, why did that resonate so much with folks? Well, in conversations with folks, especially those who, who might be people you'd meet every day on the street, to say something is wrong morally, particularly in an area of sexual morality, or to say other things are wrong, like tarot cards, or this person is teaching a false doctrine, it will engender this retort, Jesus told us not to judge. Jesus said not to judge, so who are you to judge? But that's not exactly what Jesus means here. It's clear from what Jesus says in the rest of this passage and what the Bible says in the rest of it that, that he's not telling us or asking us never to make an assessment of what's right and what's wrong. In, in fact, if, if someone says to you, you should not judge, aren't they doing that? They're judging what you're doing as judging and saying it's wrong. 
So it's kind of an oxymoron almost to say, when you say, or someone says this is wrong, to say, oh, we should not judge, because that in itself is a judgment. Do you get what I'm saying? It doesn't make any logical sense. But we also know, not just from the, the syllogism I just presented, but, but just from the same chapter. Because in, in verse 24 of Matthew 7, Jesus says, judge with a right judgment. And in the, the very next verses following this passage in a few moments, Jesus says rather harshly to our ears, do not throw pearls to swine or give to dogs what is sacred. He's calling us to make a judgment and to be careful about people who will obviously waste our efforts to love them. We know from Matthew 18 that we're called to go to a brother or sister when they've sinned against us, to seek, to bring that to them, and to make peace. That is, we're called to make a judgment about what they've done or are doing. Indeed, if that process continues and serious sin issues, the entire church is called to call that sinner to repent, and if needed even, to excommunicate them from the community of believers. This is bringing a judgment. In fact, in this passage we're looking at today, we're told to care for our hearts in such a way, the log and the speck analogy, that, that we might be able to help one another by examining ourselves first. But, but all of this implies using our moral faculties in, in Lord willing, godly ways in order to discern to some degree right from wrong in each other's lives. So if Jesus isn't saying, don't bring a judgment of wrong, don't discern what's right and wrong and communicate that to others, even about their possible lives, what is he saying? And I think much of the reality lies kind of subtly buried there in, that, in this very first verse. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. Do not judge so that you will not be judged. And I believe what Jesus is saying there is don't judge in such a way that you bring judgment upon yourself from God. Don't make judgments in such a way that God will condemn you for those judgments. So trying to stay in this verse, I want to consider two major things Jesus says here about the way that we're to judge or not judge that will make sense, hopefully, of the rest of this passage. So really two major points today. The first thing Jesus says is essentially, don't judge to condemn but to redeem. Don't judge to condemn, but to redeem. That's an awesome airplane. <laughs> so, look in verse 2, Jesus says this, in the way that you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. This is a huge indication of what Jesus means by do not judge so that you will not be judged. Do you not want your soul condemned by God? Then don't condemn others. Do you not want God dealing harshly and unmercifully with you? Then don't be harsh and unmerciful with others. And by the way, I think that word condemn in the way that it strikes us today is close to the nature 
of what Jesus is prohibiting. It's one thing to say to someone, I believe what you are thinking or doing or saying is wrong. And please consider what I'm asking you to consider. And if it's clear to even perhaps say, turn back to God. It's another thing to say in our heart, I condemn you. As if you were God and able to judge their very being. Now, I I don't think probably any of us go around our associations at work or in the neighborhood or in our homes and say, I condemn you in the name of the Lord. But we do this in subtle ways. It might be a real quiet disgust with someone. Just a shaking of the head and just, what an idiot in our hearts. This is the sentiment that Jesus warns against in Matthew 5.22. Whoever says, you fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. So one aspect of the wrong, wrong kind of judgment is to play God, to sit over others literally as their judge in a spirit of really damnation and condemning their whole being, their whole spirit in a spirit of condemnation. There's a relevant moment. I love this passage in Luke 9 because it really speaks of the dangers of very zealous, very religious people like me to lose sight of the whole plot, <laughs> to, to miss the whole point of Jesus Christ. Jesus is heading towards Jerusalem and he's heading towards the cross and he's seeking accommodations on the way in a Samaritan village. And so he sends some of his disciples ahead to say, can you guys get a bed ready or get a little uh, rest stop ready for Jesus? And they will not take him. They're like, no. I mean, they've they've probably heard about Jesus. They don't want him around. (laughs) They don't want the heat. They don't believe what he's saying. But they completely reject him. And when the disciples hear about this, James and John, they come to Jesus And they say, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them? And Jesus turns and rebukes them. And he says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. He says, you don't know what has taken hold of your heart right now, that those words would come out of your mouth, that that's like your next reflex. Like, let's call down, like, God's, like, righteous judgment on them right now. He says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of, for the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. James and John are religious guys. They've been following Jesus around for a long time. They're full of righteous zeal. And they say to Jesus, they've rejected you, the Messiah. Let's punish these evildoers. Enough. And Jesus says, yes. I mean, it's not written in the text. But, But he would say, he would understand, they deserve condemnation. They have rejected the Messiah. But Guys, you have missed the fact that that is the whole point of why I came. I came because they deserve condemnation. I came because they will go into eternal punishment just like 
you unless I am condemned for them. That's why I came to save them and you from that judgment that you're now calling down upon them. How often do we come across someone on Twitter or on social media and you look at their words and you look at the outrage and the quick judgment and the harshness and the stupidity and the foolishness and inside you what might rise up is what an idiot I just wish someone would shut them up for good sometimes it happens in our own houses I can't believe what parenting is trying to teach me about my judgmental spirit and attitude. My kids will not be getting what they want and they'll be throwing incredible fits because they're not getting what I want. They're not getting what they want. And in response, with all the, the, the righteous zeal I can muster, I miss the fact that because I'm not getting what I want out of them, I throw a fit at them. And I want justice in that moment. And these disciples were frustrated by the lack of justice and the lack of rightness in the world. And to some degree, they were right. But Jesus says, no, you've got the wrong spirit here. If you go around dominated by that desire to see people condemned for their sins, how can you claim to represent me when I came to save people from their sins? And if this is to be our attitude with the world, to hope and to pray for their rescue, how much more so should it be our attitude with each other in the church? We just had uh, new members last Saturday, and at the end, you know, I, I remember we, we had to put a little sheet on church discipline because that's a reality, an important thing a church is called to do, and that Matthew 15, 18 process. This might sound ironic, and, or it might be like easy peasy for you, but do you know that salvation and rescue and redemption is the whole point of our judging in the church. In, in, in the Matthew 18, like if it ever got there kind of way, that the whole point in Matthew 18, when you read Matthew 18 in its context, the whole chapter, Jesus makes clear that the whole point of church discipline, of excommunicating someone out of the church for their unrepentant, serious sin, the whole point is to rescue them. That's the whole point. Do you remember the man in, in 1 Corinthians 5? He's having sexual relations with his stepmom. It's super gross. Even the Gentiles, Paul says, no, this is super crazy gross. Sorry to use colloquial words. If you're looking for more something a little bit more theologically uh, dignified. But Paul's like, even the people who don't follow Jesus know this is super, this is just wrong. And the church won't judge his sin they're, they're kind of very, it seems like maybe they're very accepting and they're, he says, you're even proud of this. 
And Paul says, throw him out. Literally, he says, expel the immoral brother. And you might think to yourself, is Paul, in the spirit of James and John, is he calling down the fire of condemnation on this man? Is he condemning his soul before God? Paul says, no. Here's what he says after. He says, deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. Meaning, put him outside the community of God's bride, the kingdom of Christ, where God's grace and mercy rest in a particularly in a particular way, put him outside that community where he's no longer protected in a certain way, but into the kingdom of Satan. And then he says this, and I know that that might raise a lot of questions. Just ask me about them later or, or maybe put them aside. I, I really want you to get to this. He says, do this so that, this is the whole reason why I want you to expel this moral brother, the whole reason why I want you to deliver him to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. He says, do this so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Like, you've got to do this for his sake, Paul is saying. Do you guys remember Nathan Weaver? Nathan has talked to our whole church about this. I went to Capitol Hill Baptist where they received him back. Nathan went through a whole process of this. And he praises God for it. It, it restored his soul to God. He fell away from the Lord in a significant way. The church he was part of went after him, went after him, went after him, went after him. Eventually they had to say, Nathan, you, you can't be considered a believer here anymore. You can't take communion. You can come and hear the, the word, but we can't treat you like a believer right now. And it saved his soul by his own testimony. And he is, he is beautiful, faithful. I mean, I don't know his heart like God does, but when I think of Nathan, I think I want to be like that man, the way that he loves Jesus, the way that he loves his family, the way that he loves the lost. That was the whole point of judging him, so to speak. And so Jesus is telling us, if our assessment, our critique, our correction, our rebuke, our judgment of the sins of one another does not have at its core a redemptive spirit and the hope and the aim of redemption, if we're simply out of frustration trying to make them pay, and Jesus says, turn back to me for help. You do not know what spirit you're of. You're judging in an ungodly way. And he says, and if you go on doing that, you're going to be judged the same way. For in the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. So when we sense judgment rising up in our hearts towards others, and we, we, we feel this desire to make them pay, and we all feel that. I mean, part of it's image-bearing. Like, we all have an instinct for justice. <sighs> My son Matthew is seven years old, and he is like 500 pounds of pure muscle. And he has no concept of, like, proper, like, body space. What's the word I'm looking for? Personal space. And so, like, he doesn't hug me. He attacks me. Like, he attacks me. He, puts the, he knows how to, like, it feels like he, like, knows how to lay into it. He instinctively knows how to use his body to clobber me. And when he does that to me sometimes, I mean, everything in my head goes off thoughtless. 
uncaring. How many times have we talked to him about this? You know, everything in me just wants to make him pay. I want to like hug him back that way. It just hurts. And if you're just like, how could you do that to a child? Let me ask you if you have kids first. That's the first question. But that's the instinct is get him back, make him pay. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I wish I didn't have to say that to you guys. But it hurts so bad. I just want to be like, how does it feel, buddy? We all want to do that. And we want to do that with each other. Like when we get blown off or people are mean to us or I don't like it when people are mean to me. You guys don't like it when people are mean to you. You want to get mean right back to them. Jesus is saying that's, that's in one sense, that's understandable. That's justice. But, but do you want justice? Can you handle my justice? I remember going to a Black Lives Matter rally last year. And, you know, they were chanting, no justice, no peace. And, you know, when they were chanting, Black Lives Matter, I, I was chanting that with them. I felt like I could say yes, that's absolutely true. But then some other folks were chanting, no justice, no peace. And by the way, like, in one sense, I totally get that. Like, we should fight and care about justice for black people, Latino people, oppressed people, Asian people, when white people are treated unjustly, we, we should care about justice. It's right, it's good, it's godly. But there was another sense in which I just wanted to move like a mile away from that group because I'm just like, ah, from a theological perspective, and that's not where they were. Like, I don't want justice. I can't handle it. And neither do you want justice because none of us will be able to handle it. If God treated us just with justice. So, and please don't hear what I'm, I'm say, not saying. I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't care about the dignity and worth of our fellow citizens of all ethnicities. I'm just saying that in an ultimate sense, if we get justice, we don't get peace. So that's bringing to my second point. Don't judge as if you don't need forgiveness and mercy. Don't judge as if you don't need justice, as if you don't need forgiveness and mercy. In the next few verses, Jesus gives us perhaps the most important remedy for dealing with a condemning spirit. There are a lot of aspects and features to this that we won't get into today, um, but, but this might be the biggest aspect and feature of how to deal and think about a condemning spirit. Verse 3, he says, Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye, and look, the log is in your own eye, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Now, in one sense, this is, this is simple and obvious, right? Like, you, you can imagine fire pit log, and you just walk around with the thing. I almost brought a log today, but I didn't, you know. There's something wrong in, in Mark's contact or something, and so I, like, come over, and I'm like, Mark, let me help you. And everyone's like, ha, 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 Albert, you can't help him. You have to get rid of the, this canister and take the hand off. And like, yeah, it's, it's just basic. We... The guy wanting to do the correcting has some sin of his own that he's not dealing with 
That's putting his heart in a really poor position to deal with someone else's heart. And the sin is a log. It's even greater than the sin of the man he's correcting. Like, let's say Billy, some guy named Billy, has a terrible anger problem, and he treats his wife with great harshness. But he goes over to Jack to talk to him about the fact, and let's say Billy and Jack run prayer meeting at a church, and he goes over to Jack to talk to Jack about the fact that he's late to prayer meeting all the time. So here's this, this log of Billy treating his wife harshly and coldly and meanly week after week in the private space of their home that no one sees. And then he goes over to Jack to talk about the speck that he's five, ten minutes late for prayer meeting every week. And that is one right way to look at that. It's certainly true that we are prone to notice, many of us are prone to notice the sins of others more than our own. To paraphrase uh, one writer, Thomas Alexander, people are like barbers. They're always cutting everyone but themselves. And Jesus knows. He knows our weakness here. He knows it's, it's often easier to see and speculate on what others are doing wrong than it is to slow down and consider what we're doing wrong. He knows it's, it's easier naturally to feel the pain inflicted on us because we're us. And we feel it than it is to consider the pain that we're inflicting on others. And, and that's a physical analogy, right? Like, if you stub your toe, you're the one who feels the pain. If you watch Cameron stub his toe, you can't feel his pain. You don't know exactly what it's like. So some of that's the reality of our lives. But, but there's another part of it that Jesus is saying is, is just a, a sinful predilection and occupation with other people's faults and failures and a maximizing of those and a habit to minimize our own so we, he's calling us to guard against that, to guard against the minimizing of our own faults and then zero in, zeroing in on someone else's. So he says, consider yourself first. Deal with your own outstanding sins before you try to deal with someone else's. I don't think he means be perfect because we'd never ever be able to talk to each other and help each other, which we're exhorted to but I think he means be honest with God. I think he means make your own heart your first concern and not finding fault with others. And I'm just so convicted. I'm, I'm going to sound self-congratulatory. I'm convicted by this. I think it is true about me. I, I, it's easier for me in this season of my life to be irritated and frustrated about what others have done to me and how I've been treated than, than it has been to sit with my soul and think about how I've treated God and where I have failed him. And that's what Jesus is warning against here. And maybe that's how you feel, too, as you walk away this morning. You can think about for yourselves. Is that something that you might be caught in a little bit, needing to think about more? Is it easier to make the preoccupation what others are doing around you rather than what you're doing? 
But another way to look at this metaphor is that it's, <clears throat> it's possible that even if Billy, so to speak, in our analogy here, wasn't harsh with his wife, <clears throat> in connected with all we've said before about self-righteousness, that the, the log, the very log in this case, may not be the way he's treating his wife, but just this self-righteous, harsh, judgmental attitude that he has for Jack. Like, that might be just the whole point of the log. Even if Bill did not have an anger problem with his wife, if he comes to Jack with a condemning spirit instead of a redemptive one, well, he's automatically got a log at that point, no matter what else he's doing to his wife. The Lord is always calling us back to deal with each other with mercy and with patience and with forbearance because that's how he deals with each of us. And when we forget that, when we stop reflecting on that, marinating in that, meditating on it, that harsh, judgmental spirit, it will begin to corrode our lives and our relationships. And that corrosion can also be part of God's redemptive discipline in our lives. Jesus tells this famous parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18. He says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. As he began to settle the accounts, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Since this man was not able to pay the king, the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had should be sold to repay the debt. At this, the servant fell on his knees before the master and said, be patient with me. He begged, I will pay back everything. The servant's master took pity on him and canceled the debt and let him go. But when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins, and he grabbed him, and he began to choke him. Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. His fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me, I will pay it back. But he refused. And instead, he went off, and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. When the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged, and they went and told their master everything that had happened. Then the master called the servant in. You wicked servant, he said. I canceled all of that debt of yours because you begged me. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had on you? In anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. And then Jesus says to his disciples, this is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you. 
the unmerciful servant had a giant log in his eye called hypocrisy. He denied the fact that the debt that he owed against his king was great compared to the sins and the debt, rather, owed against him by his servant. This was a malignant, dangerous spiritual blindness. Ligon Duncan writes, when we are quick to criticize and tear down, it is a sign that we ourselves have not adequately appreciated how the Lord has spared us from the judgment which we deserve. When we are quick to criticize and tear down, it is a sign that we ourselves have not adequately appreciated how the Lord has spared us from the judgment which we deserve. None of us give God the love and the trust and the devotion and the thanks. None of us give him the hope and the honor and the obedience that he deserves. And God says, far above all the ways that we treat each other, this is our greatest issue, how we treat him. And in response to how we treat him, he forgives us again and again and again and again and again. And so he says to me, to you, in light of that, how can you ever reconcile yourself to a spirit of harshness and unforgiveness towards one another? And when we do that, we invite a kind of imprisonment to bitterness. I think this is part of the prison, on this earth at least, that the Lord and his fatherly discipline will put us in sometimes to get our attention. He'll allow us to taste the pain of that critical, judgmental, harshness spirit ourselves. We'll realize it's preoccupying our mood. It's short-circuiting our peace. It's making it impossible for us to be patient, to be kind, to enjoy things. That one friendship that's been severely hampered by our harsh spirit and that we're not seeking God to reconcile, it will begin to germinate into other relationships. Our bitterness will spread from, from them to others and others back to us. I think it was St. Augustine, though if it's not him, you can correct me, but I think it was St. Augustine who said this famous, wonderful thing. He said, resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. When I hear that saying, I think of verse 34 in, in that parable. In his anger, his master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all he owed. Resentment is a prison. You know it. I know it. 
Jesus is telling us that it's not just an emotional reality. It's a dynamic that he himself has embedded in the moral machinery of the universe. If you treat people with a harsh and critical and fault-finding spirit, you can expect God to allow your life to be kind, a kind of experiential prison. If you give mercy, you will experience mercy. If you forgive, you will experience forgiveness. If you give grace, you will experience grace. It doesn't happen like that, but it happens. God sees to it. So what do we do? <laughs> what do we do? I mean, if I said, who wants resentment? <laughs> who wants to be stuck in the prison of bitterness? Like no one would be, yeah, yeah, I do, I love it. No, you hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it so much. So we go to the only place we can ever go. First, we go to him. We go to God. We say, God, I'm stuck in the prison of bitterness and resentment. Help. Help me. And listen, it has to be said. It has to be said that, that we are not saved by our getting this right any more than we're saved by getting anything right by ourselves. We're saved by Jesus. We're saved by his blood. He saves resentful people. He poured out his life for bitter people. He died for those with a critical spirit. He gave his life is a ransom for those who make harsh judgments and are stuck in that prison. And we make progress against those bitternesses and harsh judgments and criticism as we cry out to him and ask for his Holy Spirit to help us. That's the foundation of making progress in anything. Jesus' blood and Jesus' spirit. It all starts there and everything else we do, it has to stay sustained, it has to continue to be sustained by Jesus' blood and Jesus' spirit. So start with crying out, God help me with this. As I've gone over this the last few days, I feel that prayer eking out of my soul. Lord, help me with this. So the first thing we do is cry out in an honest spirit, help. But then there are things we can do, right? There are things we can do. We look at these parables. We think about that big log. We, so another thing we can do is we can remember our sins. So first, ask for help. Secondly, remember your sins. Remember your sins. I remember my sins, not to feel shame about them, not to feel guilt about them, not to feel condemnation about them, but to call to mind what I really have done to God and to his image bearers, at least the things I know and understand. And then to call to mind how tenderly and graciously and mercifully God's attitude towards me has been for those things. Maybe you're mad at someone right now, and they've really hurt you. Like, by the way, that happens. <laughs> like, people get really hurt by other people. 
And God isn't asking us to pretend that doesn't happen. Read the Psalms. Over and over and over again, David says, look what they've done to me, Lord. Help. Ouch. And that's a good thing to do, is to cry out to God and say, Lord, this hurts. And in appropriate ways, we can't get into today for today's message, there are times to bring others into that pain and that hurt. So I'm not, I'm not asking you guys, just get over it. Like, please don't hear me saying that. But maybe in addition to crying out to God and pouring out your longings before him, which is commended in the Psalms, which is what Jesus did, Paul did, and trusting your soul to him, maybe another best thing that you could do would be to recall some of the ways that you have hurt others. Recall some of the ways that you have hurt God. And, and if you can't think of any, consider going to some of the folks who know you best and longest. And maybe ask them, which could be a scary thing and in some cases maybe an unwise thing. But there may be some people who love you well enough that you can feel safe enough to say, can you help me remember some ways? Because <laughs> all I can see is a, a golden record of perfection. Personally, I don't have that problem. And if I did, Jen can help me right away. And some of you can. But call to mind those things that you've done against others and against God. And remember what God has done in response. Remember the gospel that, that Jesus has poured on your life. Embrace afresh the fact that you have been and are and will be a constant recipient of grace that you don't deserve and that instead of the eternal destruction that you do deserve, you get reconciliation with God over and over and over again. You get peace from the one you have hurt the most. Through his son, the one whom, for your sake, God has hurt the most. You get peace with the one you have hurt the most through his son, the one whom, for your sake, he has hurt the most. This is how Paul fought his battles with bitterness and a critical spirit. This is one of the ways he did it. Remember, to demonstrate the exceeding patience. He forgave me, the chief of sinners. I was a blasphemer and a persecutor of the church. He didn't wallow in it. He didn't grovel. He didn't say, oh, I'm such a filthy, awful person all the time. No, he said, I'm a saint. I'm a new creation. Everything he preached to you about who you are in Christ, he believed for himself. He was a holy one, chosen of God, and dearly loved. Now he was. Now he was. But he never forgot that he had also been a child of wrath, walking in disobedience, despising God, wanting nothing to do with God. Not really. Not the real God. 
And this is how he told us to fight the battle too. He says in Colossians 3, put on then as God's chosen ones. You're a chosen one. Holy. You're holy. Dearly loved. You're dearly loved. Put on then compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another. And if, if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. How, Paul? How do we do it? How do we do it? Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. I love what Paul does through the power of the Holy Spirit with the Lord's Prayer. Jesus said, forgive us our trespasses, for we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus says, if you want to be forgiven, forgive others. But after the cross, there's a beautiful change in the sentiment of forgiveness here. Paul says, forgive each other now because the Lord has already forgiven you. So we cry out for help against a bitter spirit, critical harsh judgments we all make. We remember our own sins, the fact that we have a huge log that God helps us with, takes care of, forgives. And we remember the gospel. That the one we have hurt the most has forgiven us by making his son the one he hurts the most in our place. So as we go to communion this morning, and it would be a good time now to pick up the bread and the juice, I want to ask you all to maybe have a special focus this morning on folks that you're carrying bitterness towards. And if you don't feel that, maybe think about someone you think might be stuck in that and pray for them. But I just encourage you to, to bring those people to God. Don't pretend they're perfect. God's not asking you to pretend they haven't hurt you. But ask the Lord to move your heart from, I hate them. I want them gone. I want them to pay. And to move your heart towards, Lord, forgive me for hatred. Forgive me for bitterness. And may you, Lord, have mercy on them. May you cause them to see their need for you. Will you cause them, whether they know you or not, cause them to see the wrongness of their ways and to turn to you. I want, Lord, good for them because I've asked for good for me. I can't ask you for mercy and forgiveness and then call for its denial over their lives. Ask God for help with that. And then we'll take communion in just a moment.